sorry. Um, so, I mean, I guess there's a lot of stuff to talk about today. I think. Like, just a lot of, like, disparate various stuff. Yeah. Just like, just uh, cross. Sorry, at some point I'm going to stop doing that. Just talking fun. about CrossFit alone. Talking about the CrossFit community. The, oh, yeah, the CrossFit. You got a whole The, uh, the Bubba, Wall- Bubba Wallace Black Lives Matter car. I did not hear about that. Is that a thing? That's not real. It's real. I think it's real. I think it's I. I thought it was not real, but then I think whenever the next NASCAR race, Bubba Wallace is uh, going to drive a Black Lives Matter car. How many people like uh, at the race are going to actually die when that happens? (laughs) No, just like spontaneously. Have a spontaneous tire fire at the. <laughs> yeah. Oh no! Oh, shield! Uh, shield the children's eyes. And oh, I haven't. What I look—I don't know if this is. So I, I, I saw this. <laughs> I saw this image, and I don't know if this is a real image or not. But the Black Lives Matter car has the uh, the black fist and the white fist. Like it has oh, like the no. it has the, the black the handshake. The handshake. Yeah, it has the hand, from the meme. It has the meme handshake on it, and um, but then I don't know if that's real or not. I don't know if that's, but I Bubba Wallace is going to drive some sort of Black Lives Matter car. Christ! But yeah, Black Lives Matter uh, NASCAR. Well, I mean that's what happened. Uh, I mean that's what NASCAR is all about, really, isn't it? <laughs> what it's always been about. That's what it's always been about. I remember when, uh, like Dick Trickle said it best when he said. Uh, <laughs> There, there is no, um, there is no, there is no final victory. There is no final defeat. It's constant struggle. Yeah. <laughs> uh, or my name ain't. Dick I Trickle. think uh, the the black and white hand uh, uh, shaking. I think that that's big and across the hood on the front. Yeah. yeah. Is big and across the hood a uh, saying that I don't know? <laughs> big and across the hood. Uh, that's the. That's a story of me losing my virginity. (laughs) 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 The music presets in here are my favorite. Um, I mean, yeah, it's kind of amazing how in a week uh, Black Lives Matter has transitioned from being like a revolutionary slogan to being, you know, a uh, lifestyle brand for uh, wine moms. Yeah, well, wine mom lifestyle brand. NASCAR dad. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, I I don't know. <laughs> Co-option is always an interesting th- thing to watch happen in real time. Co-optation, co-option. The co-opting, the co-opting of a movement is always uh, interesting to watch in real time. Well, yeah. And it's also hard to, it's hard to say what, like... You want your movement to go mainstream. That's how it makes a difference. But also, yep. there's inevitable yep. consequences that come with that. Um, I've yeah, been watching I mean, people yeah, having it not, both not ways. I mean, Hello. this is a con- Speaking of losing your virginity. <laughs> <laughs> this is a constant argument in, well, DSA, but larger socialist circles, right? It's like... Um, a lot, you know, it's fun to be exclusive, but like success looks like people you don't like and the most absolute boring, normie people uh, 
kind of being a part of it, right? And so, like, wow, you have to kind of let go at some point of that. But then when, when it's a very particular uh, kind of black liberation movement, it, it looks a lot different, right? <laughs> and saying, well, everyone, everyone should move, should have socialism as a standard is one thing, and saying everyone should just say, uh, you know, a, a saying that, about the struggle of the oppression of black people, like it comes different from different people, right? It looks different. Like, I mean, McDonald's is probably not going to end up being your comrade on this one. No matter what they say. Well, I've been watching um, uh, people's reaction to Democratic leadership trying to show solidarity with Black Lives Matter and with the whole movement and everything else. And man, it's pissing off lefties uh, a lot. Um, uh, Well, I mean, from what I, I mean, stuff that I've seen is kind of the reaction has been from a lot of at least African Americans that I pay attention to has been kind of like what what the fuck is this has been kind of the kind of the question but then i mean i does it go back into the same thing like don't i mean i don't know it seems it seems kind of empty to me at this point we'll see i guess well it does seem empty but also if you you know like uh, i think that movements and cultures like if you believe that democracy can come up with an answer you have to get the middle you have to get people who aren't as sincere as you, people for whom it's not their number one issue. You know, um, um, I think all too many people think that, well, they think top down the way that the right does. Uh, like a lot of the people who, um, like myself, were fans of Bernie Sanders as, as president had this idea that he was going to suddenly be president and then everybody would have to be a socialist. And, you know, that's just not the way it works. And I think that we're going to do a lot better with a socialist president when we have a good ground game in at least some states. Now, I'm, I'm going to take the Democratic Party line and say ground game. Who needs that nonsense? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's just from my experience in Florida, anyway. <clears throat> Speaking of which, I didn't have this on my list of things to talk about, but I had an interesting thing happen this week. Um, well, let me do the theme song first. There's the theme song. All right, anyway, so welcome to this week's edition of uh, Attica Shrugged. Um, with me, as always, are David Dyke. Hello. And Chad Watson. Howdy, y'all. And I'm West Chief, and I'm here in the middle of a uh, busy office. So sorry, we're in Japan, starting to um, make its magnificent comeback from uh, coronavirus. So things are opening up again, which means I'm not the only person in my office. Um, yeah. So I was going to tell you this story about the local. This is very local democratic politics in Florida. But I was having a conversation with one of my friends I used to work in local democratic politics with, and we were saying how where we're from, like the Democratic Party really thinks that it's not racist and yet is like really clumsily racist in that way that uh an older generation of white liberals are just just can't seem to stay out of just like walk around with their feet stuck in buckets constantly tripping and falling down um that kind of racism and so we had just been having that conversation when i you probably saw this. I put on Facebook about the horrible uh, NHK video about like why these uprisings are happening. And it was just really insane racist stereotypes. And I put that on there. And the person who used, I'm not going to say his name, the person who used to be in charge of our local Democratic Party 
respond to, well, what do you expect from the people who thought it would be a good idea to attack Pearl Harbor? <laughs> and <laughs> then after having like kind of several chances to walk that back, um, just went all in on refusing to comprehend how anyone could criticize that statement. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, and I pointed out that it, the, the biggest out, if you were like a planning genius in the Imperial Army in like the late 30s, early 1940s, then you would at least be, if you're planning genius, you went in really, you were like a 20 year old, you're amazing 20 year old they brought in, you would be over 100 years old now. Yeah. So if you had done that and were still like uh, planning things at NHK, you would have an exceptional, exceptional career. Well, and if we're going to talk about uh, um, people's or nation's records in the uh, 1930s and 40s, I think that there's not a lot of room to talk about how great the U.S. was on race relations in the 1930s and 40s. What are you talking about? We had the New Deal. What do you mean? That was the greatest generation. The greatest. Well, but then also when you see like when you see like hundred and eight world's oldest person dies, that's usually somewhere in Japan, isn't it? So like somebody that's like hundred and eighteen years old. So I mean it's not Yeah, those people who usually they've done a lot of studies on longevity, they're usually people who are both uh in planning for the Imperial Army and then <laughs> transitioned into careers at NHK. Uh it's kind of a really amazing cohort. To examine mm-hmm. when you look at it, the longest lived people on earth, and I think they eat a lot of olive oil and fish too. Because, yeah, yeah, uh, Japan, especially in the the 30s with rationing, olive oil was big. Like it's that whole generation of Japan is known for um, robust root nutrition. Mm-hmm. Uh, it tends to happen when you're uh, under like an embargo from every country on earth. Speaking of uh, speaking of people who've lived too long, I wanted to talk about uh, Matt Gates's tweet from today. Uh, oh, I haven't seen this. I know you all keep up with Matt uh, as much as I do, but Matt, Matt uh, today was very upset that the statue of King Leopold II was t- torn down in Belgium. Uh, yeah. he, he put a video of it up and said they're trying to tear take down our history. They try they want to get rid of our history. This is what the left wants, um, and so you know I'm glad that Matt has voiced his. Uh, his support for King Leopold II. Is Gates a Belgian name? You know, that's a good question. I haven't even thought about it from that angle. <laughs> I would just assume it was like a North Dakota name. I would venture like, I would venture no. I would venture a no. No, you think it's a pretty strong uh like German? Yeah. Uh, um but you know, I, if you know anything about the history of King Leopold II, he's one of like history's greatest villains, like an absolutely like it's kind of strange. Like sometimes it feels like we're giving, I, I think these comparisons break down a lot, but like we tend to give him a pass because Hitler came soon enough after him <laughs> that we forget about King Leopold II. But he's just really one of history's most disgusting human beings who is assumed to be responsible for at least around 10 million deaths in Africa uh, and owned his own colony, which is absurd the congo free state which is what a what a great name the free state was a private project that he undertook uh, and he like was he got money from the government of belgium to run this colony in the late 1800s early 1900s um who if you know anything about this period they were famous for um enforcing the rubber quotas by chopping off people's hands 
that's what it, yeah, this so, this is what inspired um, uh, Conrad's Heart of Darkness, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's absolute Heart of Darkness hours, right? It's his real Heart of Darkness stuff. Um, in fact, there's a quote from a missionary named John Harris who kind of did the Heart of Darkness journey and ventured into the Belgian Congo and was so shocked he wrote he wrote to uh, King Leopold and said, I have just returned from a journey inland to the village of Insongo Mobolio. The abject misery and utter abandon is positively indescribable. I was so moved, Your Excellency, by the people's stories that I took the liberty of promising them that in the future you will only kill them for crimes they commit. <laughs> That's radical. That's radical. So, yeah. So he used a, a mercenary army to run the Congo called the Force Publique. Uh, and if if people there failed to meet their rubber collection quotas, that was a death penalty, and then they would be executed by these mercenaries, and then the proof that they had killed someone was the, the chopped off hands. Um, and then sometimes the the mercenaries would chop off the hands to save on munitions, which cost a lot to import at the time. Um, and Leopold was a firm believer in the idea that like, colonies overseas were how a country became strong. So he ran this whole thing and just made insane amounts of money of stealing kind of the wealth of the Belgian Congo, or what would come to be the Belgian Congo, what is now Zaire, uh, under this free free state of Congo and, and enriched himself immensely off of it. And this is this is how crazy this was. It's this period of horrible colonialism that he's doing this in. What he was doing was so shocking to other European nations that they eventually forced him to like give up on this give up on owning this the free state of Congo colony and then kind of sold it back to the Belgian government uh, who then of course ran it as a horrible European colony but he was so shocking even then so like a lot of this goes into when you see stuff like um, uh, Mobutu Seze Seko's rule of Zaire later and people kind of think well that seems uh, crazy you have to remember that all of that is coming in the wake of this just absolutely bonkers history of King Leopold II's um, Congo and what he kind of did to Africa. So Matt Gates is a little bit upset. We're erasing history that King Leopold II statue came down. But uh, the, the history of King Leopold II will always be here with us because he's one of history's greatest monsters. He was almost assassinated, too, by an anarchist named Gennaro Rubino. Oh, uh, who right. sh yeah, shot into his um, cortege uh, and missed, but, but uh, killed his grand marshal. Um, so there was that. And the further we go into 2020, it's becoming clear that like early 1900s anarchists were largely in the right of things. I am um, from the, the stuff that I've heard, the coverage I've been hearing, apparently they haven't been teaching this. Like that's one of the few, th few things I knew about Belgium um, mm -hmm. that wasn't from contemporary movies and stuff about Belgian history was they were... Uh, a favorite stepping stone for Germany and its expansionist ideas, but also about King Leopold. But apparently they didn't get, they got King Leopold as this sort of benevolent guy in their history classes. In, in Belgium or in? In Belgium. Oh. Um, oh, and yeah. so a lot of people, I think there are maybe vaguely aware that he was up to something naughty, but like the extent of the atrocities, I think isn't something that you get acquainted with in school there. And of course we have parallels to that with the way that we teach uh, native American history. 
and African history and um, the history of slavery. You know, I, I think that we're getting better at those things in the U.S. But even as late as when I was growing up, I think they were kind of new ideas that we would actually take on genocide as a, as a subject instead of just pretending it didn't happen. Well, I don't know. Maybe they did where you were, but like in my public school life, like we never had a, I don't think a history class where I, I've said this before. I don't know if I've said it on here. Probably I say it on the internet all the time. Our high school history teacher was a Confederate war reenactor who had a class where we all had to watch him get dressed in his uniform and shoot his gun in the parking lot. <laughs> well, I, I, um, I, I, I knew this stuff. My dad was very into native American history. I still have a million books about the Cherokee and other native Americans. And so how much I learned from him and how much I learned at school is maybe a little bit confused in my mind. I, and also how much, um, knowing what I did and talking as much as I did in class, how much I shaped what was going on in the class, even when I was a kid, I'm not sure. Of. Uh, I think embarrassingly I didn't, I think by the time I was in maybe junior high, definitely high school, I was like, I know everything they're teaching me is absolute garbage and I can't wait till like, I get out of here to like confirm that. So there was, I always, I sound like the old person now, but I always should tell people like before the internet, like it was weird because you could suspect that all of this was incorrect, but there was no, like I, there weren't, weren't, I don't think there was, I'm trying to think of the bookstore. We didn't have like big chain bookstores either. So it was like, I suspect this is wrong. This sounds weird to me. Um, but there was no real outside validation of that. Except for like, you know, if we were in Atlanta, I could like pick up a Noam Chomsky book or something, but that's about it. Yeah, I'm trying to fe- I'm trying to think. Like I I mean, I guess I read a lot and I was really into like Native American history and uh things like that and and I would we would get like in high, in in our classes it would be like, well, you know, like history was um you know, like history was complicated, but uh, the U.S. was, you know, the good. We ended up doing the right thing in the end. So there you have it. <laughs> the end of American but, history. How did they know that didn't happen till this week? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but but then I would read book and like the books I would read were always they were more they weren't uh, like Howard's End type books. Right? No, um, but they were more like, well, like it, it actually was very complicated and uh and um, you should probably read more than this book that you're reading. Here's some other books, or, you know, it was, and that kind of ended up, you know, I think, yeah, maybe when I was able to actually go to like real bookstores, I was, you know, actually looking up real things about, about the real history of the United States. I, yeah, I still remember, what was this book called? There's a book, I was at a bookstore somewhere it might have been like sundog books at seaside back when they were still cool but there was a um a book and it was like not a people's history of but it was like something like that about nicaragua Mm. um and i remember reading it it was really easy to read and it was like one of those absolute like holy shit moments i was like oh my god this is what the u.s did in nicaragua this is insane um and, and but saying being being an official old person now like before the internet like you just you could suspect those things but if you live somewhere where you didn't have access to learning those things it was really hard to find the information um i think it was really college before i really got the full before i got the full story um the real story i remember we had bury my heart at wounded knee 
uh, laying around the house when I was, uh, whenever it came out, my dad had a copy and other things like Black Elk Speaks, um, uh, a lot of Native American stuff. As far as contemporary politics, though, not so much. I remember, actually, there was a movie with, I think it was Ed Harris called Walker. Do you guys remember that? I think so. Uh, what was that? Oh. It was this, It was about the American mercenary uh, post-Civil War who went down and took over oh. Nicaragua for a while, and then it all fell apart. And part of what made it fall apart was he decided that it couldn't work without being a slave nation in spite of the African-Americans who had helped him out. And it's all pretty much historically accurate. And then by the end, there are helicopters coming and it's, you know, it becomes very heavy handedly about contemporary, uh, but but about contemporary Central American politics. But I think I, I might've even already come to Mexico when that came out. So it was like when I was 20 or something. I think I've told this story before, but I still remember this very, uh, in great detail. I remember being in junior high history class or geography class. We had Miss Wooten. Um, and I remember my friend, Emily, who's still a decent person. She was a good person she asked the question like why i can't remember how she phrased it, like why were africans enslaved or why were black people enslaved and uh miss wooten sorry miss wooten if you're if you're dead now and stuff but uh answered well uh people think it was because um of of their color they ran away they were easy to find and that was the answer that like this whole classroom full of kids at brunner junior junior max brunner junior junior high school as it was known at the time that's the information they got about slavery, right? Which is crazy. It's a crazy explanation. Well, I mean, um, and, and that's the best I could do. There's a context for it where I was actually thinking about the question of why enslaving Native Americans didn't work so well. And part of it was because they tended to die from European diseases. But part of it was because they could slip away and go west. Yeah, they left. Uh, but yeah, a lot of African, a lot were. of African people did that too. You know, there's a lot of African um, people mixed in with with native tribes. Sure. Well, and you know, in New Orleans history is just wrapped up in that because you had people who ran away and lived in the swamps in the maroon communities, um, and people who still count that as their, you know, who they descended from, and there's a lot of kind of pride in that history and you know there's still great debate about where the Mardi Gras Indian tradition comes from but there are there's that line of thinking that it extends from that from that dynamic of people feel of people having this association between Native Americans and uh, escaped African escape from enslavement African Americans uh, Seminole people uh, there's a lot of um, uh, African ancestry mixed into the Seminole aren't there you're a Floridian yeah, I assume it, you know that Yes, and I don't know enough about Seminole history as I should, but I believe that Seminole, in fact, is not. Uh, I, I'm I'm so not well versed on how to speak about Native American history that I I am uh, I, I worry about saying it the wrong way, but that that the Seminole tribe was a tribe made up of people who had kind of um, left other places, right? So it wasn't like. Uh, we have to think of their history in different ways than we think of like the Cherokee or the Creek or the Choctaw. They were, ba- they, they were, were basically the survivors, right? 
who, who right. banded together had, because of geography yes. rather than because right. of common right. historical roots. Right. I, I, I believe that's the case. And that so, and you know, um, and undefeated, right. And kept moving back further into the swamps and were able to kind of fight off uh, these encroachments and invasions. Um, which is why the, is it unvanquished, the statue at FSU? Uh, anyway. Um, so yeah, interesting, all that stuff wrapped up. But uh, as we're talking about Columbus, I was just going to mention the news of the day, which is in <laughs> Richmond, the protesters have managed to get the Columbus statue and toss it in the lake at uh, Bird Park, which is very exciting for any of us who have lived in Richmond. Uh, it can be exciting for the rest of us too, but it's really fun to see. So someone had the, uh, I w- want to give them credit, but I don't know who said it on Twitter. They said, uh, Columbus just discovered Atlantis. <laughs> well, that's what they did to Leopold too, right? They threw him in, was it the sea or a lake? I can't remember, but they... they... Oh, well, no, but in England, they got, uh, not Colchester, who is it? They got the dude and threw him in the canal. Yeah, the big, uh, what's his name? He was like a slave. slave like he did... Slave trader. It was like, oh yeah, he did lots of really good things. Yeah, because he, but all the money that he did the good things Colston. with was yeah, Edward Colson, Colson. Yeah, it was called Edward Colson. That was it. And that statue weighs like several tons. It's gigantic, and they <laughs> threw it in the canal. And then someone updated Google Maps to say that to have it located in the middle of the canal, and it said presently closed. <laughs> And then I don't know if you saw the next day, these uh, white supremacist guys tried to dive for it and pull it back up with like a pool cleaning stick. (laughs) (laughs) It weighs, it weighs like over two tons. Like you're not going to get it. Um, Well, the statues are coming down all over the place. Uh, Tennessee still has the Nathan Bedford forest statue inside of the Capitol. And they have a special law to protect it there, uh, which is really weird. That they can't just decide to get rid of it. But Tennessee does that a lot. They pass these laws and then they uh, try to enshrine them as deeply in layers of law as they can because they know what shitty ideas they are. Like uh, we have a constitutional amendment. That says that we cannot have a state income tax. And I don't have a strong feeling about a state income tax. It's a pain to file and all that, so maybe not. But we don't really need it in the Constitution. What if we need a state income tax at some point in the future? Isn't it enough just to say we're not going to have a state income tax right now? But the same thing with this um, uh, Bedford Forest statue is that they knew that it was an objectionable thing and that people would want to get it out of there. And so they made a special law that said you have to repeal this law before you can get rid of this stupid statue. Well, so Republicans have been very good at this over the last 30 or 40 years, and it's a strategy of theirs, right? And that's one thing that ALEC, um, the organization ALEC helps to do, is to craft these laws where, um, yeah, where they're just embedded in everything and they're really tough to pull out because with obduracy being what is it what it is once it's in there it's way harder to get it out than it is to get it in and will be more controversial you have to have a giant controversy to be able to get some get something taken out whereas to get it in there it's just well we we passed it there it is kind of neutral um but yeah with statues have been taken down in uh mobile like that just kind of happened overnight like they took took the statue of mobile out uh where else like richmond is i love seeing monument avenue right now like monument avenue the statues are just graffitied up and actually look better. Like, I think it looks like an amazing 
art exhibit right now. And someone was making the point, some people in Richmond, that a lot of people who've never been on Monument Avenue or never felt comfortable kind of being on Monument Avenue or using Monument Avenue uh, as a place to be now and are all over it. And those are supposed to come down, um, which again, all this is a, a great argument for why kind of um, having public uprisings is is more effective than than incrementalism on these things. We've moved further forwards on on this issue in a week than we have in decades. Well, I keep hearing people say nothing gets solved with violence, and it's like, well, sometimes yeah, a lot does. Um, certainly, there, these have been really effective uh, demonstrations to actually at least get lip service from elected officials, and also to. Um, um, get things like statues taken down and actual, I mean, I'm not sure that's progress and it's important symbolic progress, but it's not going to suddenly, um, transform the racial, um, divide in the U S but it's a good step, you know, and, and it's something that protesting and, um, popular support and all these other things couldn't get done. Right. Right. Because in, in this, you know, the kind of the kind of public all all the things that would be required to do these things officially would just be bogged down and get bogged down and be so bogged down and that's the way they're kind of supposed to be is that they put this out there jane jacobs described this kind of thing as like eating a pillow to go through these kind of bureaucratic steps to accomplish anything um and and so you this is where you get stuck in it and you get stuck in the status quo of it right and sometimes it's easier to get it done, get it done this way. Um, and yeah, it does like, I, I try not to look at Facebook very much at all, over the, especially over the last few weeks, but, uh, it, it's amazing to me to see the shift in consciousness there too, of people who would have not supported any of these things all of a sudden saying, well, at least, at least this is gone. At least that's nice. Yeah. I'm, I, yeah I mean, whoop, go ahead, Chad. No, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to say that a lot of the people, who I heard uh, telling me that the Klan was invented by Democrats and the these statues that they represent people who were Democrats um, and talking about the history of the Democratic Party, which certainly had a lot of its roots in slavery and in being the agrarian pro-slavery Southern Party. Um, and they want to sort of superimpose that onto the contemporary Democratic Party, and yet it's not Democrats that I see really trying to keep the statues up, and so they're kind of trying to have it both ways in a lot of cases. I mean, this has been the case, and if they actually cared about you know that distinction, it would matter, but it doesn't matter to them. But by the same token, it doesn't matter to me that that's the you know what I mean. If if the Democratic Party supported those things now, then I wouldn't vote for them. It's like a pretty easy thing to be like. Why do I? Yeah, that's the history of the Democratic Party. It's. Uh, a hundred years ago. It's more than, a, it's 150 years ago. If that was still the position of the Democratic Party, they would have no support from the people who vote for them now. So um, okay. it, it assumed, at, at the heart of that argument is an assumption that political parties, uh, once they are founded, continue to, to be static and represent the same thing they were founded on, which is absurdity. Anyway, Chad, what were you going to say? Oh, well, I was just uh, kind of like to backtrack about the... Um, that, yeah, I don't know how much, you know, like sort of like the perform, I don't know, like how, like the performative, um, like performative, uh, 
I don't know, you, you could say it's performative, uh, what the Democrats did, uh, mm-hmm. you know, kneeling for, you know, nine minutes and then, you know, coming out the next day and saying, hey, like, we're not really going to defund, like, we're not, we're, right. you know, we're not going to defund the police, you know, here's like sort of, you know, some incremental stuff. But I mean, I think the real, I mean, maybe the real change is going to come from like the, you know, the city councils that are going to say, hey, let's uh, look at these budgets and, um right. You know, let's let's take some let's defund the you know let's take a hundred million dollars out of the police budget. Um, yeah, absolutely. And you know, I'm I'm certainly not the first person to make this observation, but like people act like defund the police is radical, but they've had no problem with defunding education for the last how many years? I don't know, twenty. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. New Orleans is often held up around the country as an example of how to do education. And, uh, you know, my kid was at the last public school that got closed down. Uh, and the only people we could get to come to meetings were the parents from that school, right? They defunded edu- the public education system in New Orleans doesn't exist anymore, right? And that wasn't, um, you know, it was revolutionary in many negative ways, right? But no one said, huh, how can you possibly conceive of that, right? In fact, it was celebrated, right? So defunding the police is something that's completely and totally possible to do. They have bloated budgets anyway. Um, well, I think we could get um, Republicans on board with it if they privatize the police. Uh, maybe Blackwater yeah. could take it over. Well, haven't they already in some places? I mean, but yeah, no, I mean, that's the other important step is you can defund the police and you also have to have like laws and policies saying like no, no to private police forces, which is going to be a hard part too. Well, yeah, I, thought, I mean... Yeah. I mean, that's the th- I mean, the thing is not just like we're just going to we're just going to uh, phase out the police and just crime will take care of itself. I mean, there are, you know, things that you have to do to, you know, we can't just there are things to do in place of the police. It's not just we're not just debanding the police and then every it's every man for himself. Well, right. And there's things, you know, like we were saying last time, like I've said forever in sociology classes, there are things that the police are asked to do which are not police jobs, right? And I think that that is not a small section of things. It's a very large section of things, right? There are tons and tons and tons and tons of things that uh, are not in the realm of police work that, that need to be taken care of by other other parts of society. And then we also need to change the idea of what police work is. Um, you know, it's funny, I was thinking about this the other day, and I'm this is just a small, small view, but I was thinking of this, this incident that happened when I was living in New Orleans among people I knew who were not American citizens, but in America on really solid visas. They were in America on these visas, uh, working and all, all of this stuff and, and everything completely by the official paperwork. And yet there was, I don't want to go too far into it, but there was a big there was a big problem that happened, and nowhere in that did we think that anyone involved in this was going to be able to call the police because we didn't want to get wrapped up in in paperwork involving you know that could implicate your visa. And it seems like if you are if you've ever dealt with things like that, and I know David, we've talked a long time ago about um, about uh, gay couples, like also assuming that they're not going to be able to call the police when lots of things happen. Like, I think most people understand that there are ways to deal with issues that are not police issues, right? Absolutely that, yeah. And I think that one of the things that, one of the problems with defund the police is that people mean very different things when they say it. Mm -hmm. And 
the people who oppose it, who oppose allocating police budgets to other organizations that can better handle with handle issues that we hand to the police right now. One of the problems that they have is that they think that it means there is no longer a police force and there is no longer force in the police. And they recognize that we have an incredibly violent society and incredibly a society that in many ways worships violence and militarism and guns and all the rest. And that if you take out one faction of um, gun-toting, violence-promoting people, that you only leave the other side of that. But the, you know, the idea that you just, you try to de-escalate one side um, and, and uh, work on de-escalating both sides of um, what is basically an armed conflict in, in the U.S. And then all the people who get crushed in between are less likely to get crushed. Um, and that you don't always have to meet violence with violence, even if there is as much violence in the society as there is in the police, which is a whole other conversation. Right. And it also, yeah, we have to make, we have to understand also that the police are not, you know, a lot of that violence, the police are implicated in a lot of that violence, right? I have to say, I've been, um, um, this happens all the time. I think of myself as cynical and uh, think of myself as somebody who is unsurprised by bad behavior and all. But the behavior of the police in these recent uh, protests has been pretty appalling, I have to say. Like, so many people caught on film doing just unspeakably awful things. And, like, the famous case in Buffalo of the uh, uh, older gentleman, 70-year-old guy, who I'm not sure what he was doing. Some people said he was giving back a police helmet or whatever. But, you know, he's like a protester who's been a protester for a long time, affiliated with the Catholic Church, and is, you know, he's a protester, but he's hardly some sort of uh, rabid radical. And when he got shoved down, that I thought was bad, but also, you know, he gave, the guy gave him a shove and he went down. But then when they saw that he was bleeding from his ears and they restrained the cop from stopping to try to check on him or help him, that was just so far beyond the pale. I didn't even know what to think of it. And over and over again, you know, there's a, a lot of different uh, examples of where that stuff is happening. And I know that um, uh, excessive force is used regularly, but it just seems like such a politically stupid thing to be doing right now that um, but it, they're kind of, it's like they're doubling down or something. Yeah. But they are. And it's because, I mean, a lot of it's because uh, those people know that there are no consequences for them. There might be this time. But there are people who've gotten by on no consequences forever. Um, you know, I've talked about my the first. I'm trying to think this is the first time I really was exposed to police violence or not. But the one that stands out the most for me was my first year of college in Richmond. When we were walking down, me and my friends, my friends had come up from Florida. They were going somewhere else. We had been down by Gray Street. We were going to get in my car, and I had parked in a grocery store parking lot um, where I sh- shouldn't have been parked because I wasn't grocery shopping. And one cop came out and said, like, you shouldn't be parked here. I was going to give me a ticket. And an African-American homeless guy who um, was kind of uh, 
a feature on that street. He was always around, walked over and he said, look, look, I know this guy, man. He was, he was, he was going to the grocery store. Like you don't need to give him a ticket. Just being like a, you know, nice guy who's in the area trying to get you out of trouble with the cops. And, uh, the cop just got super pissed at him, called for backup immediately and had 10 to 15 cops. I remember running out of a substation, just tackle them and started wailing on him with, uh, with their batons. And my friend Keith, this is before cell phones. So my friend Keith went over with his camera I was trying to take a picture of, of, of the cops. And then they chased us down saying, well, you want it next? You want it next? And like ran us off, ran us out of the parking lot, right? And um, I don't think anything ever happened to those guys, right? I think that's probably what they did most most nights of the week or when, it, you know, it happened. And it was never going to be a consequence for them. So in some ways, it's shocking to me. In some ways, it's like, yeah, I mean, that's that's how it is. Yep. Um, but I think it's good that people are having to see it. I hope people see it and recognize it. And then, of course, the other problem is you have a lot of people see it and love it, right? Makes them really happy. Well, at this political moment, you know, it's just that there are so many uh, gestures, empty or not, I don't know, uh, uh, but a lot of gestures being made the other way. And yet it sort of speaks to the problem. You know, it's like when we were talking about the um, uh, senators or representatives taking a knee and all that, it's... um, uh, you know, nice gesture and all, but the thing is that the neither the Senate nor the, the feds basically don't fund local police. They don't supervise right. local police. They don't uh, every local police force. It's kind of like education. People talk about the crisis of education in America, but there's lots of places in the U.S. where there are great schools, but those are places that can afford them and where. The kids have to, the needs of the kids have to be met or important wealthy people are going to, I've got quotes around important, I guess I need to mention, uh, are going to raise hell about it. And so there will be consequences. And then there are other school systems where people are working multiple jobs to get by. There's a fair number of single parents. There are a lot of other uh, issues that go along with poverty and disenfranchisement. And those schools are really, really horrible. And I think the same thing's true of a lot of police departments, which is one of the reasons I was kind of shocked that it was Minneapolis where this all started. But I think it happened for a lot of people that when it wasn't some southern town, when it wasn't some notoriously rough town, um, but when it was a famously liberal city, where this happened, I think that that helped more people to realize that it wasn't just isolated among the people that they want to think are the racists in America. Right. So uh, it's funny, we've been like uh, a while on this thing that I thought was going to be intro topic, but I, <laughs> I want to move on to this other, th- there's been a lot going on in New Orleans this week has been interesting. And um, I think this kind of goes into what we we're talking about now was uh, our boy Drew Brees got taken <laughs> taken to the woodshed this week and it was kind of it was fun to watch a little bit hard to watch a little bit and and very interesting to watch so um chad i'm sure you've been keeping up with the. i've been keeping up with it yes i have um david probably not as much i actually paid attention because i figured it would come up <laughs> but, <laughs> you know drew I was about to say Drew's a complicated guy, but it's actually the exact opposite of that. He's yeah. he's like a golden retriever, right? And so um, I think he's one of those people who really is 
I don't think he's stupid by any means, but I think all of his brain power has gone into football. And so he kind of did this really all lives matter kind of thing. We did, uh, well, I just don't, I don't condone someone kneeling on the flag. Did we talk about all that last week at all? Maybe. Mm. No, I don't know. I don't know uh, if we talked about the kneelings. I don't so, know. So he said, I'll never condone it. You know, my granddad was in the army and I could never condone someone kneeling on the flag. Um, and that's usually the kind of rhetoric that he and like many other, especially white athletes, just get away with constantly, right? Because it's complete. It doesn't mean anything. Um, as I was pointing out to people, like if you're Drew Brees and I are about the same age, like is there anyone our age or like what is the percentage of people are around our age whose granddads weren't in the army, right? Wasn't everybody's granddad? It was World War Two happened. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, Every, my yeah. my granddad, my my dad's dad was. Uh... My my grandma my mom's dad was not, but that was because he was like the oldest. He was like the breadwinner in the family, so he got like a deferment. But his his brother went like in his place. So. Yeah, it'd be like a rare exception to not have a close family member in the army who is at the World War Two age, right? So it's nothing really exceptional his granddad did, and you know other people. Uh, Jackie Robinson was in the army and came back and said he'd never stand up for the pledge again in his life. Right. You know, people came home from the army and were lynched. Uh, Howard Zinn was a bomber, you know. But anyway, so he kind of said that. And then like immediately, Michael Thomas, um, star wide receiver for the New Orleans Saints, best wide receiver in the NFL, uh, recently signed gigantic contract. Um, African American, young African American man immediately like on, went on Twitter and said, like, uh, he don't know no better, I think was his quote, yeah. which, which says a lot about Drew Brees being, you know, Drew Brees is 41, 42 years old and multi, multi, multi-millionaire who's lived in New Orleans for over a decade, right? Uh, so I think he don't know no better is um, a lot more of an indictment than it is an excuse. And I think that's how Michael Thomas, who's a very smart guy, intended it, which is, which is good. So Drew Brees, I think to his credit... Um, realized he said something that he that couldn't be rolled back easily and he put out he got the epic handshake feature in there on instagram mm-hmm. but he also you know said i realize this isn't about the flag and and i spoke inartfully about it and i realized that it's about these other issues that i haven't been paying enough attention to um and then after that he he also um recorded like a live thing saying, I want you to hear me say it and see me say it. Like, I believe this, but as this was going on, you know, there, there were seven days of protest in new Orleans and he had said this kind of in the middle of that. And so there were people in new Orleans burning Drew Brees jerseys, which is a very, I mean, no one is more beloved across all demographics in new Orleans than Drew Brees, but there's people burning Drew Brees uh, jerseys on St. Charles uh, Avenue. Right. Um, uh, which is a pretty big deal. So uh, his teammates did like there was did a big meeting. There was going to be a team meeting anyway, I think. But they apparently talked about it. And, um, you know, I know Michael Thomas and other African-American players, Cam Jordan, probably were very vocal in the meeting. We don't know what was said in the meeting, but apparently it was a um, heartfelt meeting. But uh, this is all interesting. But I think one of the, the most important things that will come out of this is that kind of conservatives are very upset saying, Drew Brees, you have nothing to apologize for, right? And then Drew Brees has kind of said back, in fact, to President Trump, no, I, no, I did. Here is where I was wrong, right? And I think you're going to see a very prominent, well-off white family now experience publicly what it's like when you are 
not just kind of all shucks racism is bad, but actually say something anti-racist, like how the the price you pay for that in social life, right? Is well, and I think specifically them- talking back to the president who's, who basically uh, accused him of, of giving in to um, liberals and of um, uh, being a coward for walking back what he had said before. He didn't, yeah, it was it was a pretty direct and um, uh, unwarranted attack, and um, so I think when Drew Brees clapped back, that that was um, you know it was a big thing. You know, watching, I think we're watching more and more people have kind of a come to Jesus moment about uh, what a sociopath the president is. Well, that could be good. You know, it's one of those things where I'm like, well, you didn't know that all along. But it's also, it helps that people realize that. Um, you know, also Matt Gates is one of those guys. Like, Drew, you have nothing to apologize for. And it's really funny because a lot, you know, guys like Trump and Matt Gates have a lot wrapped up in being liked by people like Drew Brees. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I think being on the other side of that is going to be really interesting. And it's going to be really interesting with the season starts, too, because a lot of those season ticket holders are people from... Uh, Jeff Parrish and people from out in the other parishes, people from Baton Rouge, white people who are not going to be happy if Drew Brees um, does anything symbolic or not to to uh, associate with, with Black Lives Matter people. Um, when you say people like Drew Brees, I assume you mean Tom Brady? Sorry, no, this, uh, your sports reference has failed completely. Oh, okay. Uh, I, I, object, I object to that association. But so at the same well, a white the quarterback who uh, is chummy with Trump. Yeah, I think that um, I think Tom Brady is uh, like five levels more stupid than than Drew Brees. Like an actual stupidity scale, if those exist. Well, what uh, I mean to say but, is not that they are personally similar, but they hold yeah. symbolically similar places in the culture. Oh, sure, sure. And like, yeah, and you can see it clearly for Trump, right? Like being liked by Tom Brady and Drew Brees is a really big deal for him, right? Yeah. Being on, you know, and I think being on the other side of those people is going to, I think, I don't want to overestimate it, but I think it actually hurts them a lot um, to be on the other side, to be on the wrong side of that. But so all this other stuff, as this was happening, all this other crazy junk was going on in New Orleans, uh, which were these protests were happening at night. And so Drew Brees says this, these jerseys being burned. And I believe it was the same night. Um, a lot of the protests that were organized by the uh, New Orleans workers group, um, people I like and respect a lot and was fortunate enough to be able to slightly work with on the, uh, taking down the monument stuff. Um, they were organizing a March that went onto the bridge, the Crescent city connection. Right, which is the bridge across the Mississippi River connecting what we think of, what, what many people think of as kind of the city of New Orleans to the West Bank of New Orleans um, and also to Jefferson Parish. And, uh, you know, David, I know you're aware of this bridge isn't just a, this bridge is pretty symbolic in many ways relating back to Katrina. Yeah. Right. Um, and my Andy Horvitz, who's on my dissertation committee, is writing a book about the history of Katrina. It's coming out soon. But he, he talks about what happened with the bridge and, during Katrina. Um, and I want to read his account, but he, he kind of says, I saw he phrased it carefully as there are allegations that the police fired on people that were trying to cross. But I believe you know people who were fired on, right? Um, I know, uh, I'm trying to remember exactly what I can say that I know for absolute right, fact. Right, right, yeah, I don't. 
Um, I don't want to get you in trouble. Either. Like I know secondhand. Um, uh, I've heard I've heard very convincing secondhand accounts about people being turned back and fired upon. And I'm trying to remember who told me. I absolutely believe that it happened, but I don't want to name names because right. I'm not. I'm not. It's been a while, and I try not to. <laughs> strangely, I try not to think about it. Katrina too much. That was a rough time. But and then also my roommate at the time um came across the bridge. Uh she had broken her leg actually. Um she'd been there for more than a week, I think, or, or as much as a week after the uh, the storm and the levee failure, and had been in the uh convention center uh with a broken leg. And she and some other people who were all white uh, basically got a luggage roller from um, um, a nearby hotel. And she they put her on it and rolled her up the ramp and went across the bridge. And she said that, they, that it was very clear that they were allowed to go across the bridge while black people were being held back from crossing the bridge. And then as soon as yeah. they were on the other side, they were in a uh, place that was being evacuated and people were being flown out and stuff and put on buses. Right. And I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, she broke her leg getting into the snack bar at the Superdome, right? So that people could eat. Uh, no, she actually broke her leg coming down the stairs at the Deja Vu to answer the phone when I called uh, her. It's it's a little embarrassing oh. to me that I called and she came running down the stairs. And uh, uh, But the, the people that she was with did break into at the, not at the Superdome, but at the convention center, did break oh, yeah. in to get... Um, um, fresh water, which was locked away behind uh, grates. And uh, also a lot of people were breaking into the stores at the mall there because they were wearing clothes that were soaked through yeah, with filthy. the world's nastiest water. And um, yeah, it was... So they, were loot they were looting is what you were saying. Exactly. That's that. all of this looting of non-essential items. You've got clothes on. Why would you be stealing clothes? And also, uh, I think it was Condé Nast magazine named it "World's Nastiest Water." But so, so what was the point I'm kind of building up to with that is that, like, if you've you know, if you know about this bridge, you live in New Orleans. The bridge out of New Orleans to the West Bank, which is still New Orleans, but also Jefferson Parish and a little bit, but it's it's not without a lot of symbolism, right? So this march goes up the bridge. And, and what happened next is not without symbolism as well, is that the police formed off uh, a line and would not let people cross the bridge. They stopped them in the middle of the bridge, right? Uh, and what happens next, it, what was, it was very uh, conflicting reports. Now it's starting to turn out that the police just lied about the reports and, and the protesters were correct about the reports. But the, the New police, Orleans police um, lied about what they did during Katrina? Well, I'm glad that you are also uh, <laughs> surprised about this. Well, they lied about what happened in this protest. So they say they issued a warning. No one, everyone there says they did not hear any warning. Um, they, someone is yet unidentified, rolled a uh, tear gas canister into the crowd. Tear gas begins going off. People are on this gigantic bridge over the Mississippi River with 18 wheelers backed up like behind them, right? Um, and start to scatter because these things start exploding. Fortunately, some of the, the people at the protest said, walk, 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 and people listened and started walking away. Then the police started firing rubber bullets at them. 
Um, the police denied they fired rubber bullets, but enough journalists uh, had documented injuries on people and said, um, you know, well, we don't know what these are, but there are people with injuries. Then the police have come out this week and said, oh, yeah, actually, you know, people did fire rubber bullets. We think some kind of projectiles were used, but there's kind of communication breakdown about who did it and where. Yeah, we're not saying that we fired rubber bullets, but rubber bullets were fired. Passive voice, uh, uh, good old passive voice. So rubber, passive voice. Rubber, hmm? rubber bullets might have fallen out of our guns. <laughs> <laughs> the passive voice has been doing a lot of work this week, um, as usual, police reports. Uh, but so, yeah, and so you had this, this incident, and people immediately were like, no, you fired on us, you did tear gas on us. And this is the day after protesters have been on I-10, the Claiborne Corridor, also fraught with symbolism of being an African-American neighborhood that was torn down to build an expressway. Uh, but the police like took a knee with them, which, you know, whatever. And um, everyone was saying, well, why is this all going so well in New Orleans? Why is everything working so well? And then it made it up into the bridge until there was an attempt to cross over to the West Bank and they were fired upon. Right. Uh, so this has been a big controversy. The NOPD announced yesterday they're going to have a show and tell event <laughs> to demonstrate what they use. This is the, this is the exact terms they use, the show and tell event to demonstrate like what non-lethal, again, quote-unquote, non-lethal um, munitions they used on, on, on the Crescent City Connection, right? I wonder uh, if their victims get to uh, come in and show their wounds and, um, um, and, and tell what happened to them, or if it's just a one-sided show-and-tell. Well, that was my response, is like, what does the community get to bring to show-and-tell, right? And if it's too scary, do you get to then uh, fire on them in defense? Uh, <laughs> and then someone, someone else was asking if, like, if, you, if we get to shoot the, the rubber bullets at them, which would yeah, be Yeah, that would be good during the bit. presentation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, here it comes. Uh, yeah, so this is all going on. There's, there's a ton of other stuff, too, that I wanted to talk about. Maybe we'll hit it on next time. But this has also led to this crazy thing happening this week where the complete disintegration of one of the major Mardi Gras crews, uh, and Mardi Gras, you know, wrapped up in a racist history, too, but where the the crew of Nick's is um, had 27 of their float lieutenants um, resign because the captain of the crew, uh, former police officer Julia Lee, uh, Julie Lee, has refused to step down after doing her All Lives Matter Instagram post. Um, and so this is a major, major parade, and it's just disintegrated. It has 3,500 members, and it is disintegrating over this issue, which is probably, I think, good. I think a lot of things... If people are finally opening their eyes, man, it's nice to have some things disintegrate. Well, the whole all lives matter, um, um, like catchphrase and all the rest, I've just never seen so many people absolutely refusing to understand a really logical, basic thing, you know, and pretend to not get it. And I, and I, I, I mean, I thought at first maybe they just were too self-interested and self-involved to get it. And then I realized it's, it takes a real act of will. Because I know a lot of people aren't good with nuance or subtext or context or any of the other things that make that such a dumb and offensive statement um, in, the, in the current context. Uh, but, you know, how many times can it be explained before anybody should be able to get it. And a lot of people who, uh, uh, you know, Drew Brees, who clearly right. wasn't getting it, he had it explained to him in a way that um, uh, that he did finally. Um, right. 
I'm just I think you know shocked. I think shocked isn't of, quite the right yeah. word, but disappointed. I think it's one of those things too. Is like, and conservatives are very good about this, especially at the like the kind of conservative, conservative intelligentsia are good at getting like these little small arguments started. That means that people never have to address the actual question or the right. actual issue. So that you can argue, you can argue and argue and argue about whether all lives matter is the right or Black lives matter is the right terminology. It doesn't it doesn't matter, right? Like you want to argue. Like is the point is that they want to have an argument about it. Um, instead of approaching it, I think I know one person, um, one person that I grew up with who actually doesn't get why all lives matter is bad. I think they actually don't get it from interactions I've had with them, and they are also a school teacher. So. I'm I'm working on it. I'm I'm reading books. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, I'm Jay. Reading, I'm glad glad that you I'm do reading that. books. I'm trying to like, get I, educated. I, I haven't talked to them recently, but like a, a year or so ago. Um, they said, like, do you really not think that all lives matter? <laughs> uh, well, um, that's the same sort of argument that uh, conservatives pick by calling it the Democrat Party. Right, right, right. So like, you can argue about well, whether it is. That's matter. just not the name of the party. Right. It just isn't the name of the party. And yet you use it because you want to draw people into an argument about that so that you can score some stupid right. like uh, fifth grade debate points instead of actually talk about anything substantive because uh, you lose on substance. Right. Well, that's been a fun thing to watch with all these statues getting taken down this week is that there's so many people who aren't in cultural heritage or historic preservation who um, say, I can't believe they're erasing history and like pretty much every uh, historic preservation or cultural heritage person I've seen is like, no, it's cool. So I'm like, don't worry about it. Like, it's not, uh, don't need it. You even had like the one lady giving the, the, um, she is an Egyptologist, uh, doctor Egyptology. And she gave the advice on how to topple an obelisk, which was excellent. And then there was another, I think person who's in like, uh, like art preservation or art, I can try to remember, but they were saying like, which materials, um, really will damage statues more than paint. So it's good to see our community, our preservation community coming together to um, hate stupid monuments. I've had a few people ask about what's going on in Mexico in reaction to this. And there is stuff going on. Uh, but also I think a lot of Americans don't realize that we just went through months of serious protest about um, about how many women are murdered every day in Mexico and how oh, many right, women yeah, yeah. face domestic violence and all. Yeah. And there was a lot of talk about how dare they spray paint monuments and a, a fairly effective um, job at, at changing the conversation from how many women are murdered in Mexico every day, which is appalling, to is it really okay to spray paint concrete? Right. And as someone with a degree in historic preservation, I can say to everyone, yes, it's completely okay. Don't worry about it. <laughs> it's all right. No big deal. The amount of heritage that's being destroyed, like that you're not paying attention to every day, would boggle your mind. So spray painting a monument's really not a big deal. It'll grow back. It's heritage, not hate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I hate I hate I hate a lot of heritage. <laughs> but not Heritage High School, David. I don't hate it. Uh, Heritage High School I, is such an odd. Uh, I don't know if that was a, <laughs> if there was a kind of. That's where I went to school for uh, people who don't know the context. 
in Blount County. It was built just a few years before I went to high school. So early 80s, it was built. And to what degree that was, um, like our, our mascot was a mountaineer, uh, which makes sense because it was, it served Townsend and the, the, all of the area that, uh, verges on the great smoky mountains national park there in Blount County. And as far away as I grew up in the foothills, not in the, uh, uh, in the tall mountains, but, um, uh, Heritage is so often the name of schools in the South, especially that are sort of Confederate themed. Um, Maribel, I think they still have the uh, Rebels or the Red Rebels are still their uh, football team. Um, well, you're thinking of hate, hate <clears throat> high school, like your rivals. <laughs> Heritage. Heritage high school. <laughs> and the, yeah, they have their cheerleading, their cheer squad is always uh, uh, hate, not heritage. <laughs> Hey, not heritage. It's, um, <laughs> but yeah, well, I haven't really County looked Park? into how they came to, um, arrive at that name. Um, we got a lot of heritage there. Did you see the Blunt County March this week? Mine, I think my niece was in at least one. She goes to a lot of big. these things. Uh, uh, I'm very yeah. proud of my niece. I should say she's, uh, yeah. you know, she's not some sort of, uh, uh, Ivy League liberal by any means. Uh, she uh, cleans homes for a living. Uh, 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 that's not the only income in the household or anything. But uh, and she's uh, not a college graduate. Uh, she's not a. She doesn't fit the demographic that conservatives would like to paint liberals as being. And I don't know that she would call herself a liberal, but she's definitely. Yeah very much uh, very vocal about Black Lives Mattering and about um, uh, gay rights, about a lot of stuff, you know, and she shows up for well, the... She's always had a, a very good uh, sense of uh, justice. Exactly, yep. Well, I think uh, we can wrap up this week uh, on that, and I think there's <laughs> maybe nothing else will happen this week, and we can Probably just talk nothing. about... Probably nothing. Yeah, we just, nothing will happen this week. Uh, yeah, next week, uh, I'm... Um, uh, rereading the English Patient. If we could uh, just do a little book club about um, uh, the English Patient next next week. I'm reading the plague, so there's that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, talk to you guys next time. Next week. Next week. Next week. Next week.